Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour. This week, we'll be looking at the film The Hunger Games. The VFX show is our review show, where we uh, invite friends and uh, celebrated VFX artists from around the world to join us in reviewing the visual effects of a film. We have a, a brief section where we review the film, and then we get into a heavy-duty discussion of the VFX, because quite frankly, there are very few VFX uh, kind of reviews that go on with any kind of meaning in the world, as opposed to our FX podcast, which is interviews with the people actually making the films, and of course, our other podcast to do with digital cinematography uh, and visual effects work in general. Today, I'm joined on the line by my friends, uh, Jason Diamond. How are you, sir? Good. How are you? And Mark Christensen. How are you? Great, Mike. So um, this week on the show, The Hunger Games, uh, a phenomenon of almost biblical proportions, uh, unbelievably good box office, I think, even for the filmmakers. Um, you know, some describe it as, uh, I think I saw a tweet somewhere that described it as uh, that the film uh, Twilight proved that you can appeal to young girls, you'll have a breakout hit, and this film proved that if you could actually make a worthwhile film, you'd make a lot of money out of it. Um, so I'll start with you, Mark. What did you think of Hunger Games? I enjoyed it. I was accompanied by a member of the Target demographic, who is ah. a big fan of the books and very much approved of this rendering. I must admit, I was um, uh, briefed by my two daughters before going into the film on exactly what to expect and um, and how to do things. <laughs> uh, so I had I had copious uh, sessions while driving them to various uh, sporting events or whatever, as that explained to me in minute detail what to. Um, to look for in the film so I was but they didn't actually go with me to the screen because I was a bit worried it was going to be a bit violent uh, I must admit going in and what about you Jason? Um, I also was prepped by seeing the original version of this called Battle Royale made by Beat Takeshi in Japan oh probably at least 10 years ago and when uh, you say the original version of this um, I think you might be speaking so slightly tongue in cheek yes yeah. but uh, the woman who wrote the books had to have seen uh <laughs> Battle Royale. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously she made a whole giant world out of it that is not in that movie. But there's very, uh, very specific things that are uh, the same. Regardless, I did very much enjoy the movie. And I thought that they dealt with it really well. There's a few things I didn't like, like Wes Bentley's beard really bothered me. He looked like the bass player from Jellyfish. But, uh... <laughs> 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 um, but, uh... And and the whole Victorian ish kind of thing that everyone did since two thousand one kind of bothers me, but that's just aesthetic stuff. The filmmaking was was actually really good. The acting was phenomenal, and I, I really liked what they did with it. Okay, well, I think you've hit on a point that I, I reckon is worth discussing before we get into the visual effects work, which is just how strong the acting was in this, and and I think there was no one stronger uh, than our lead. Uh, uh, Katniss, she was, I think, the thing that made this film elevate from, you know, good to, to really good uh, for audiences. Would you guys agree? I mean, she really just provided a kick-ass uh, performance at every level, emotionally and, uh, and action-wise. Absolutely. I mean, she's been good in every movie she's been in. It's, it's, it's not an easy role to take because she's almost in every shot, right? Um, and uh, obviously some of us said Noah from X-Men First Class, though I'm going to guess, Jason, you would be a Winter's Bone kind of guy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, what about you, Mark? What do you think of her performance? Yeah, she nailed it. And I, again, my, my uh, date to the film would not have tolerated uh, a mediocre performance. So uh, I, I really do think she nailed it. A lot of presence, poise, you know, pr- and yeah, 
I think she she kept me in the movie. I guess what sums it up for me is that she was a brunette with blonde roots. Um, she <laughs> normally it's the other way around, and the people are playing you know sort of stupid characters and and being uh, girly kind of props for other bits of action. And she wasn't. She was uh, a really intelligent lead woman. Uh, but as I say, seriously, she's actually a natural blonde. Um, and uh, so yeah, I think that that performance just alone really sort of carried a huge amount of weight with it. Was there any other acting performances that you guys thought was standout? There was a couple of others I thought were kind of good. I, I mean, it was cool to see Kurt Cobain in the movie. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> yes. There was Kurt Cobain, yes. Anyone else? Uh, well, you can't beat Donald Sutherland. I mean, he's class act all the way around. Yeah, no, no, I thought uh, I thought he was good. And um, uh, I thought that... Um, that uh, the other male actors and stuff were good. Um, I actually thought you guys would go to Caesar, the, uh, yeah. the host. Cause I, was I thought just... he, because he could have been really annoying and cheesy and just downright unbelievable. But there was something that actually, obviously, was a comic figure and bigger than life. But he actually still felt like he was exactly that what that guy would be like for me. Yeah, it was that. a little little Richard Dawson uh, Running Man, but but. But less game showy, more Donahue. You know what I mean? Like he yeah. to date myself. You know, he uh he I mean that's Stanley Tucci though. He's he's the same, like you put him in anything and he's gonna he's gonna run with it. He uh he yeah, I think he really rode the line really well of being that sort of sensationalist character that he needed to be, but then also like seeming to get want seeming like he thought he was getting those like hard fought details in his interviews, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think he was, yeah, because that was a huge role, but uh, I guess like Lenny Kravitz's role, I mean, they were important roles to not have you kind of lose that part of the plot from. Because really, it's kind of two films, isn't it? Like this whole film before they get in the arena, and then there's the film after the arena. Um, and actually, I wanted to use that as a jumping off point, because before we get into the visual effects, and I would not normally do this, but I just think this film had one of the best marketing campaigns I've seen in ages. Um, there's obviously some really bad examples of marketing. We talked about them on this show, this show uh, recently. Many people have pointed to how bad they thought John Carter was in terms of marketing, in terms of what it told you about the film. Apart from the rollout nature of what they did on Hunger Games, they did a lot in showing you what happened before you got into the stadium, but not what happened in the stadium. They didn't show you any of the death scenes or the action scenes of the uh, kids sort of fighting each other. And they may have done that for a whole lot of reasons, but I think the net effect of it was this felt like more to me like an old-fashioned film, and I mean by that from the 70s, where you see a trailer that makes you want to go and see the film. It doesn't tell you everything, but it tells you enough to kind of pull you in. But it's certainly not a random series of rock and roll clips that make no sense. Um, And, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen in that stadium, uh, certainly in the trailers that I was seeing here. So it was like, good, well, okay, I'm going to go see this film. I'm going to get an idea of what's going on and I understand the premise of it. But to see it play out, I'm going to have to go see the film, which is, I think, what a, a trailer should do. Uh, and certainly they, they whipped up a heck of a pre-sale. Mark, did you, in America, did you sort of sense that was this a good campaign from where you were sitting? You know, I kind of had my hand heavily tipped that this was going to be a slam dunk by the number of people who just went nuts over the books. Right. Uh, And that, you know, I started hearing about that late last year when, you know, it was just getting passed around by various, mostly female readers um, as a absolute page turner. So 
I really thought that if they were just true to it and didn't overplay their hand, that they had a hit here, and that turned out to be the case. I have to say, I mean, this is way off board for talking about visual effects, but I don't think the poster was good at all, the kind of double face thing. I, I mean, so they didn't get everything right in terms of the marketing. Okay, I, I, the poster we had here was just Katniss with a, a flaming arrow about to shoot at you with the logo on the end of it. Was that a different poster from the US, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like this double-headed thing where her head, her face is twice the size of his so that she stands out. I, I don't know. Just No, we didn't have that. Yeah, I don't oh, remember that one either. It's actually, if you look at our dossier, it's on the front page okay. of that. Not to call you guys out on not having noticed that. I, um, <laughs> one other person I would just want to talk, because we're about to hit visual effects, but I just I totally remiss in not doing this. I do think that the young actress that played Rue was yeah, also particularly good. I was going to say that. Yeah. yeah. Um, really sympathetic. I mean, I think mm. they did a lot as filmmakers to make her sympathetic, but I have to say the section of the film that where i really felt surprisingly moved was the aftermath of her demise now that we're into spoiler land yeah well interestingly um i spoke to uh sheena who was the visual effects supervisor on this uh for the film not for any of the individual companies she was the overall visual effects supervisor and i asked her what her favorite bit of the film was and that was her favorite i also heard on a interview with the director that when he spoke to children uh getting the you know, basically pitching for him to be the director of the film, he went and spoke to kids about what was in the books that they really liked. And a lot of them referred to Rue and the death of Rue as being one of their favourite bits of the books. He portrayed that apparently to the team or the writer that was selecting who who was going to, you know, direct the film as something that he really wanted to focus on. So from the people that work in the visual effects to the director from before he even made the film to us watching it as viewers, I think it's magnificent that there's a consistent line there that, hey, this is the kind of humanity that made this story what it is we're not going to lose that through the middle of all of the you know studio hollywood making film kind of stuff um because they could have lost sight of what made the books good and and you summed it up mark didn't you if they had done if they'd lost faith with the book audience they'd have lost the whole picture indeed i mean you have to give you have to give lionsgate a little credit for not pussing out on the book and letting it letting it be what clearly i haven't read the books but clearly what people are responding to is that it is like the book and they're not losing sight of the sort of greediness and dystopian sort of vibe of it even though it's for kids i mean although i have to say i mean they they're mid dystopian and i'm a big fan of dystopian sci-fi and this one isn't going to be that memorable as a great dystopian story it it doesn't have the weight of say children of men but it shouldn't they would have i mean they did it right to get the kind of i mean they they opened this movie on just the right note so i'm not saying they should have followed my advice (laughs) to make it more memorable (laughs) did you read to me yeah no i've i've read part of it i actually didn't find it as much of a page turner as uh others that i (laughs) <laughs> referred to earlier so i you know i've like the first third it's funny because i read I, I did the same thing i read part of it i couldn't read the whole book in time to do a series of interviews i was doing so i read um sections of it that my kids told me there were important sections to read and i read stuff up the end and it was much more graphic in the book i mean i was kind of mortified my kids which is why i didn't take them to the premiere uh so for example and again major spoilers but at the end um 
there are three characters left, and uh, what's the oldest guy from whatever zone he's from? Uh, section. Um, oh, uh, uh, yeah. The I guy f- who's I forgot his yeah, name, like Troy or something like that. Yeah, he in the book he falls down into the mutts, and in fact he's been wearing a suit that doesn't allow things uh, to cut through it. It's like a kind of uh, high polymer kind of something rather suit that means that the only thing the mutts can get at is parts of his body that are sticking out of the suit, which is his hands and his face. And so they're basically mauling him, not on his body, which can be crushed from the weight of them being on it, but they can't pierce it. They're mauling his face and hands and stuff. It's quite graphic, and that's why she kills him. Um, and I was thinking, oh, my God, I can't put that in the bloody film. It's never going to get a PG-13 rating. Uh, and there were several of those kind of incidents where it was much worse in the way it was written than it was in the film. And some people have actually come out and criticized the film. I mean, some critics have actually said that they, um, they, they did a, a cop-out because they went to making a kind of a more accessible film. That being said, uh, from a purely box office point of view, they've clearly, you know, filmmakers one, critics zero. I'm not um, sure how much more graphic it really needed to be, honestly. Like, I thought they rode the line fine. Like, do you really need to see some kid get his head chopped off? Like, I think you get it. You know what I mean? Like, I thought they yeah, did Yeah, you a- got that there's violence for entertainment as a theme, for sure. And I, yeah. what I said about a movie like Children of Men, I mean, that's just a much darker story. As dark as this one is. It's an adult movie, too. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting what they do with the sequels. The sequels were not greenlit when they started production. They got greenlit because they had so much pre... I think it's funny, this. You know, we always talk about box office opening weekend and stuff. But, of course, they they don't care about when they get their box office. So if you buy tickets in advance, that's money that they've made for the box office, right? So they they basically broke enough box office records before the film had even opened from advanced sales uh, that they greenlit the, the second and third one. And I'm reading the second one now mainly because... I just got intrigued with that difference between the films and the books. And I mean, I'm giving nothing away because it's clearly um, there in the, in the film. A lot of the second book develops into this love triangle with, um, uh, with, uh, with several of the characters. And to that respect, it's got, you know, all the sort of twilight um, hallmarks on it. But also in the middle of all that, there are some really horribly graphic scenes going in the second book uh, and I'm sure that'll be the case if I ever get to read the third book. So clearly they're going to be pulling it back. Or, I don't know, I mean, I think uh, Harry Potter got a lot darker yeah. as it went along. It's a little Empire Strikes Back, you know. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see which way they, they take it. But, I mean, you know, they got to be salivating the prospect of making a um, the, the the next two books. Actually, I think they make three films now. They're going to do the, um, the Harry Potter trick of they're going to do a second book for the second film and then split the third book into two. Um, some I wonder if should... they're going to open up the budget a bit for those second and third. Oh, of course to. they will. Of course they will. Well, what's interesting, and I, you know, I know we don't need to focus on this a ton, but you know, this budget is in that no man's land that used to not exist. Uh, I mean, from what I understand about the budget, which was supposedly around eighty million, so it's kind of a low budget big movie. <laughs> right or or a much bigger budget than a, a low budget movie so you know and apparently i mean listening to your conversations with the um effects supervisor mike there you know there was a real shortage of money and time on this production and i'm sure they'll get a better shot at doing it properly in the future but i think this may also set some kind of standard for what can be done for that 
budget. I mean, a lot of people are going to look at this, right? I'll bet I think also, I was going to say the other thing, don't you think, is that, like, from a studio point of view, this is a much cleverer way to make a film. Like, adapt yep. a book as opposed to just buy a really expensive existing franchise. And then, you know, don't go $300 million on the first film. Go sort of under $100 million on the first film. If it works, then you can up the budget and do more. If it doesn't work, well, then you haven't blown enough to get all the studio executives fired and shut down on production of almost every other film you're working on. Mm-hmm. I mean, John Carter of Mars had it cost $125 million, would now be considered a successful Disney film at Two three hundred million. It's considered one of the biggest box office failures Disney's seen in, in you know, in a few years. So well, and similarly, the Golden Compass was based on a really good book, and mm-hmm. but they they did not please fans of the book, shall we say, with that movie. Yeah, yep, absolutely true. All right, well, enough of general stuff. Let's get into the visual effects stuff. Um, there were twelve hundred visual effects shots in this film, uh, and. It was spread out on a number of companies um, around the world, actually. And I have to say, it wasn't, um, it wasn't what you'd call a classic big tentpole kind of picture, I think, as you alluded to, Mark, in the sense that they went to a couple of the big houses like the Dean Eggs or the, um, uh, I don't know, Sony Imageworks or whatever, and said, Wetter and said, you know, okay, here's, you know, 600 shots, whatever. They tended to portion stuff out around the world with some facilities that may be a bit hungrier and probably therefore competing a little bit more on money. But um, there were some pretty interesting... Did you, you, Mark, I think you said you heard my interview. You heard about the second unit, some of the second unit directors that um, contributed some footage on this? Steven Soderbergh, for one. Yeah, and, uh, and Scott from ILM, which Scott I thought was Ferrar. interesting. Yeah. Though ILM did not have a, a proper credit on the end of the film, so Scott kind of came in to help out. And then I think helped out down through to uh, working with Pixel Mondo, who seems to work with ILM and stuff. Have you guys noticed that trend globally of uh, now a number of companies, like, and I'm not talking about this film now, but you might go to a company like ILM and it's actually an ILM film, but then ILM subcontract out as opposed to going. So if there were three companies, you would, you know, five years ago go to A, B, and C. Now you go to A and then A goes to B and C. Does that make sense? I worked on Pirates of the Caribbean for ILM at Evil Eye Pictures under that exact setup. So has that been going for decades or am I right? Well, it's been going for at least that long, but I think it's based on really solid relationships where the, the master house trusts the other house to execute on a sequence. And in ILM's case, I know it's usually a sequence that they just don't consider groundbreaking. They like to work on the stuff where they can try something new or challenging. And if it's just, you know, the stuff we worked on was very challenging from the point of view of comp, but it wasn't uh, what the visual effects Oscar was going to be based on. So they tended to focus on that. And uh, Jason, what did you think of the visual effects of the film? Uh, I liked them. I don't think there's any that really jumped out as uh as something i didn't like i think the train looked a little weird in the wides uh but i think it's because they were they were it was their own version of a train so you you only saw it briefly so i think because it was like supposed to be hovering or something it just looked weird but i think it was just more of a design issue than a effects issue were there any scenes that you particularly liked mark yeah the uh inferno sequence but actually i think in terms of, you know, I think that this film really was as much about art direction and 
even dominated by cin- cinematography as much as by effects. And it, it even reminded me of, um, you know, the controversy recently with Flapping Guy. Are you familiar with this? There was the guy who, uh, it was one of those YouTube videos of a mm-hmm. guy um, supposedly using wings, a little rig to fly. And this ended up getting critiqued at ILM. Somebody sent it around ILM and then they published the reactions on, you know, probably on a news group there. And the first reaction said, well, I can't tell you for sure, but I can tell you that if you want to cover your tracks with VFX, go handheld and blurry and knock down the evenness and quality of the shots. And that could sound like a cheap shot at this film. Actually, I think the way it was shot was appropriate. And I think it would have been a lot of fun to work on a lot of shots in this. I don't think there were, you know, that many that we would... I mean, sometimes on the show we talk about groundbreaking effects. And the one area that I would point to that is probably in the future UI stuff in the control room. Certainly, I'd agree with you. I don't felt there was anything here that would warrant VFX Oscar. Wow, I want to, you know, this is like uh, we've never seen this before kind of stuff. But by the same token, there was very little that took me out of the film. Yeah, I think I think that scene in the control room was an exceptionally well executed virtual control panel set. Like if you had that, and that comes up from time to time in various genres of films or sci-fi, but in various storylines that you need a room you know, in a, I don't know, spaceship about to shoot somebody or whatever, you want a bunch of guys sitting around controlling stuff. Well, this seemed to be a very good implementation of that. And um, and from what Sheena explained to us on the on the interview we did with her, one of the reasons for that is they actually worked out what the people had to do and then told the actors actual actions that had a relationship to the design that was already done rather than having people wave their hands around in the air kind of and then later on somebody trying to work out, well, when he hands his hand to the left, maybe that indicates this or that. Because uh, it seemed like the actors, uh, who clearly weren't leads in the film, because most of them were had no uh, speaking lines, had direction that was quite concrete. They actually did things with their hands that made that UI seem like it worked, and in turn it made sense to the audience and saved us a heck of a lot of somebody going through exposition on what the hell was going on. There's another thing that Sheena said in that interview, uh, which really resonated with me, which was that when they were designing this, they were thinking of Avatar as maybe the last thing they'd seen that really had a lot of future UI in it and how they didn't want to go that direction. And having worked on the future UI in Avatar, I can remember thinking as we were working on it that I just didn't believe that in the future that, for example, fast-moving lines of Unixy code scrolling down the screen matrix style was what the future looked like at all i i always you know at the time i remember thinking the future looks like the ipad and this ui is much more along those lines so it left all the techno gack out and focused on functionality in a really refreshing way it had the style of a lot of other cool uis like in tron or whatever but you really had a sense of how it worked, and I think that's what you're talking about, is how it served the story by being lucid and even informing the action, which is just really rare. 
Yeah, and from that same discussion, how they added more and more uh, in the edit scenes in that control room because it gave you a good chance to kind of update the audience as to where characters were and what was going on. It was a great exposition device that allowed you to tell the audience, okay, I'm making some creatures which I'm going to put in the sh- in the in the game. These creatures aren't there already. Uh, we've we've invented or not invented them, but we brought them into the game late because we have a purpose to serve. Uh, this character is way over here, away from these other characters. We need to move it back, and this is the edge of the universe, and they are inside a bounded space. Because, of course, the beauty of this from a production point of view is that when the characters are running around the forest, I mean, occasionally you see some stuff up in the sky, but most of the time, you know, there's no <laughs> there's no uh, walls to deal with, no skies to, you know, do anything to. It was just like a forest you shot in, and there you go. It saved a lot of time um, by just pretending that hey, they couldn't really see much, and then occasionally putting up those graphics in the sky to remind them that they were inside a domed um, space. I think I don't think there was... Was there any sort of discussion of what the control room was doing? It just felt like it was all obvious enough from what was going on in the action. I yeah, mean, I, I mean, think he made requests of what he wanted them to do, and then they, but, you would see them do it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> totally. But nobody sort of walked into the room and said, this is the control room where we're controlling the game. <laughs> no. Yeah, they never... I think there was a refreshing lack of exposition in this movie, actually. Um, And they never actually... You're right. They never told you what Wes Bentley did. They just told you he got interviewed by by Stanley Tucci, so that tells you that he's important. He talks to Donald Sutherland. He must be important. And then he's in the room telling people what to do, so he must be important. So I, I think... You know, and you're in there, and, and I think one of the first things that told you that they were affecting the space, because they didn't really, until they show the stuff in the sky, you never, you didn't know that it was like a, I, it wasn't, but like a holodeck of sorts. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So like, when there was a point where the where the one of the people in the in the control room put like it looked like a little projector or pad or something into the what seemed to be the the virtual reality rep, uh, uh, version of the roof of the dome and projected that that uh, scoreboard on the roof. Yep. That was the first time I was like, oh, okay, I get it. There, because I was like, what is that? Because it's really cool. It was really well done. And then you see it, and then they cut inside. They see it. Okay, I get it. They're manipulating it. They're showing it to them. And then once they got into the fire and the other stuff, you realize that it was like an ed tv kind of domed in you know controlled thing it's funny isn't it for a film that was quite long they were quite economical at times for example that whole idea there were cameras everywhere they had the one shot of her finding a camera in the tree and then it was almost like okay tick that the audience now gets there are cameras everywhere we won't have to keep on showing cameras in trees or you know refer back to that when she wants to signal to the people in Section 11 or whatever it is. I keep on saying section. Is it section 11? or District. Um, district, thank you. District 11. She just turns around and makes that signal, and we all get that there are monitors, uh, sorry, cameras in the environment, and so it just all works. You know? Well, they also we- kept cutting to the, to the people watching, like split screen or multiple cameras or, or just that they were watching. So you just assume, again, lack of exposition in a good way, you assume that there's cameras that are following them and and they're moving and i think at some point earlier in the in the in the movie they showed the west bentley's character saying stuff like ready camera six or like it felt like like a td kind of you know director thing like enough lingo that you got that he was in control and there was some sort of television production Hmm. 
You know, they, I give the directors or the, the direction credit here throughout. They took another really important plot point and did it without dialogue, which is, I hate saying his name, but Pita's uh, relationship where he provided this bread. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually, a. so I read enough of the book that that's a significant part of, you know, the early part of the book. That's her main association with him. And they just dropped it in there in a really kind of first intriguing way and then revisited it very economically. I bet it was 45 seconds total, like two, two 15 or 20 second segments on screen and gave you this rooting interest. And I, I think it's something that's often missing from adapted stories particularly the ones where the filmmakers expect they've already got an audience. They sometimes the writers forget to put in these rooting interests. And so you get 20 or 30 minutes into the film and you're like, okay, why do I care about these guys? Mm -hmm. And that was not a problem with this movie at all. Okay. So Hybrid did that control room and, and, uh, and I totally agree with you on those points over the the story and the direction. Um, Let's hit a couple of the other visual effects points. One of the big points my kids were busting to, know how it was going to look was the dress on fire yeah um that was a rising sun effect it's in two places it's when they are coming in for the parade and they're on the chariots of which there was only half the number of actual horses that we saw in the final piece and then again when she's on the tv show um mark what do you think of our dress on fire because it is a bit of a signature thing yeah i and my uh accomplice at the film really liked the whirling the second dress with the fire integrated right in mm-hmm. um had this just i mean it, that may be if i were going to pick a signature vfx shot from this film i might i might choose that i hadn't thought about this before but i would say that it's the thing we talked about after we watched the movie and it was really like it was something new i hadn't really seen it before it, it was very symbolic of this character's independence and her her fire uh, the the chariot part it was great um it didn't stand out to me as much i think there were things in the capital including that effect that looked a little bit vegas to me and i don't think that's bad i mean this the environment of this film felt like kind of post-war england meets las vegas a little bit so Liberace. i thought it was appropriate <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah so uh you know what i'm talking about um i thought the tributes parade was less successful than the the game show fire i thought the fire on the tributes parade was streaming behind them in the way that probably flames would if you had a you know forward motion that they would go behind you except for that was such a big deal both in the books and just you know it was going to be a big turning point for her in the story that i kind of expected the flames on her in the chariot and him to be more interesting in the close-ups um, and kind of dangerous kind of yeah. like really daring and dangerous yeah yeah but at the same time they they completely set you up for it to be what it was because lenny kravitz his character just basically kills the suspense she goes is it gonna hurt no it's fake it's just for show it's blah 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 it's blah 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 so there's no like is is she are they gonna get burned is there any danger like they just killed all that before they even got going so i think it just became merely a showpiece to show how the characters would use it to their advantage for the sponsors or whatever the the stuff was i i agree that the dress was way better yeah 
What do we think about the Capitol generally? Because the first Capitol view shot, um, we see it from the train. It's across some sort of water and stuff. I saw it, and I was totally expecting to come back to it, as I was with several visual effects in this. I was like, okay, well, that's the shot, and then in a second I'm going to have the bigger shot, and the bigger shot never came. It was particularly the case with some of the hovercraft uh, flying stuff. Like, we're on a landing pad. There's a craft behind us. You have to go over to it. Okay, I got a shot of it that was kind of quick. Next thing I know, she's in it. Next thing I know, it's taking off, and I don't see it taking off. It's all from the inside. Well, okay, maybe that's her point of view. Next thing I just hear somebody saying, they've landed, and I don't see it. I'm like, well, hang on a second. Um, did you guys get that feeling? Like, it was almost like there was one whole shot you didn't get in some of those sequences? Yeah, well, you know, I felt like the shot I didn't get was the reveal of Naboo. And, you know, <laughs> so if you have one filmmaker who's just in love with his concept of, uh, you know, uh, Renaissance paradise in space and you have another filmmaker who's telling a story in which this capital is really more about power and fear and entertainment you know and it really i mean i don't know about you but to me the the main shots we got of the capital reminded me a lot of caesar's vegas (laughs) that's i mean the scale of it and the big fountain and and all that and so and i you know, at first I was thinking critically like, well, huh, that's not as interesting as it could be. And then I thought, nope, that's perfectly appropriate. And actually, I'm not really that interested in uh, just salivating over how beautiful this city is. It's actually meant to feel cruel and unfair. And so Vegas works perfectly. Yeah. I mean, I think they effectively presented the city as somewhere you actually don't want to be. Uh, you don't want to really live in those shots and you don't really want to be there because it's disgusting and like it, you'd rather not saying you'd rather be like altruistic and I want to be uh, in the district and starve. I'm just saying they didn't make it inviting. It wasn't like, you know, Logan's run where you're like, oh, well, it's kind of a cool place or whatever. But I think the lack of continuous shots in a visual effect sequence lends or speaks to also the economy of the filmmaking. I mean, I'd say 70% of this movies are, are is close-ups or medium close-ups. You know what I mean? There's not a ton of wides. Uh, I think they show yeah. one wide at the end of them on top of the, of the, um, uh, whatever they call it for, uh, cornucopia. You know what I mean? Like when they are fighting and it just happened to be like sort of the voice of God angle. Uh, I, I don't know. I really liked it. I thought it, even in the fire, the, the, uh, dress on fire second time in the interview her it felt like a uh, black swan a little bit you know it was a little like mid shoulder up with audience and then and then a couple you know medium wides of the dress see in the in the game show thing we had one shot with the crowd kind of going up into infinity and then i felt i didn't need to go back to that like i had got that and then they were just there was a crowd and it was all about her on the stage and there was lights and i was fine but you didn't feel that thing about the hovercraft or something where they got their, you know, tracking things put in their arm, that there was just like an entire shot missing from that sequence? It didn't just, I mean, it felt like um, old school filmmaking where you couldn't show that shot. So you'd go, oh, he's just pulled up outside in the amazing craft <laughs> that we can't show you. Oh, there's the door. He's come in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you could argue that. I mean, they, I, there's the one where they show the craft coming down and I thought they would cut to a reverse and it just blacks out the screen. Mm. Uh, 
you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Was it they didn't have the time to do that shot or they felt like they didn't need it in the edit or, I mean, you know. What, what did you think? Did you think it needed it or you thought it was good? I, I, I'm, I'm not picking. I'm just asking. No, no. I, I don't think – I don't really – honestly, I don't feel like I missed – like I was waiting for any shots uh, in any in any of the sequences. Is this a film where – Unlike some films we've seen in the past where we go, I wish they'd just worked on the plot, but instead of that, you've got visual effects just controlling and owning, and the only reason you'd see this is for the visual effects, and oh gosh, we wish it would serve the story more. Are we in a world with this film where there's 1,200 shots that are pretty much serving the story, and there isn't a lot of, for want of a better term, effects porn or, you know, destruction sims or, you know, cool vortexy stuff that in fact this is doing what effects should do? I, mean, I would agree with that a lot. Uh, I mean, whether it's what effects should do or not, I'm a big fan of effects that you can't see, and I sensed a lot of that in this movie. Um, you know, and uh, there, there are quite a few cases in this film where they took the easy route, but it didn't really bother me. I mean, her shooting the apple, right? Like, they did that with a classic cutaway. I mean, they, <laughs> they did it the old school way. The, the dogs... When we get to those, you can barely see them, right? They're mm-hmm. they're in the dark. Um, they they looked cool enough. Again, they didn't particularly take me out of the film. I was sort of curious about how they were materializing, but it made sense. Um, but it was, you know, the train. I mean, the first real VFX shot I was aware of in this movie was that train. Like the first VFX element added to the film that I was really aware of was the high speed train. And they didn't give us a money shot of it. It was all kind of medium-wide, speeding by for about four seconds. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. I didn't... And I totally agree with you, Mark. I think you're right on the money. But it didn't occur to me that one of the problems of why you needed so many visual effects shots in this film is that you just can't have young actors of this age, especially the younger ones in the cast, handling weapons of any sort of form of description or risking themselves in any way form because it would be irresponsible apart from illegal so you know when Katniss picks up bows she's not got any bows in a bow she's firing blanks as it were um, because you just don't get actresses to fire arrows and you don't get kids to pick up very sharp things and throw them and do stuff like there was a lot of just weapons in the hands of kids that had to be done because the actors you couldn't you stunt doubles because you can't get a stunt double that young that's any more legal than having a, a child that young. Um, so VFX was serving a really good job there. And then there was other stuff that was, uh, you know, obviously more like the fire sequence and, and the mutts. But, um, well, yeah, then there were a lot of things that were, you know, set extensions, window yeah. reflections, all kinds of stuff like that as well. I mean, anytime you're going to set something in the future on a modest budget, there's a lot of stuff you're not going to build, right? Mark, did you name the Inferno Forest Fire as one of your favorite things? And if so, could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a cool sequence. At the time, it was bugging me a little bit that the forest is so moist and it goes up so quickly. But I actually think, you know, with a hot enough fire, they'll they'll do that. Um, It was dynamic, and I was watching it. I mean, it's going to be a little hard for me to say technically what I thought worked about it because I really... You know, I didn't actually get taken out of it enough, and I only saw the film once. I didn't really get taken out of it enough to ever feel like, um, 
you know, like there was anything for me to really critique. And I, when I heard about how they did it, it made sense that, that I, you know, experienced it that way because it was a lot of practicals with enhancements, which is a really cool way again to go on something like that. Right. It's funny. You can see a film with 1200 effect shots and it doesn't feel like there's much to discuss. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so in that sequence, the things they did right were, you know, like they didn't go for the cheap, just, you know, wall of fire wipes through there was there was you know layers of stuff there were gradual things happening dramatically to make it work and there were those fireballs being flung at her and again it's rooted in the story it wasn't just an inferno it's also showing you that you know these capital people have control of this whole environment and they you know they won't let anybody take the easy way out like she can't just hang out at the edge of the world until the two weeks is up yeah i mean it it is a problem that i thought about before i saw the film which is god i just find a remote spot and hide from everyone until they all killed each other um um, what about you jason what did you think of the inferno sequence or the flaming forest redirect them down to them i uh i thought it worked i mean i had listened to the to the interview with sheena before i saw the movie and um so I knew how they did it, but it still worked. I, I actually had more of an emotional reaction, which is, I think speaks to the quality of the scene that I, I immediately was like, well, that's ridiculous. That's completely unfair. How could they do that? Or, you know, like, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know, once he started, give me a tree right there and give me a, give me a, this right there. I mean, I think, I think it all worked. I didn't, the fireballs were a bit much, but, I mean, how else would they set the forest on fire, you know? And it's sort of tied in later when they made the dogs pop up from the ground, which worked fine for me, but that solidified that, you know, they can make stuff happen from anywhere. Hmm. Um, but also, Mark, to your uh, statement earlier where you were saying about um, how they kept the dogs dark, or the mutts, or whatever they call them, I think what works is they kept them dark once they materialized, but you saw the dog in its point cloud in a nice bright white room for you. So you basically understand what it is and what it looks like. And yeah, then you don't fate. have to, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you don't have to, you see its outline in its basic form and then they don't have to show you every wrinkle and detail in the forest once it actually materializes. I thought the balance on the mutts was great. I mean, it really was, yeah. you know, it's kind of scary, but lots of noises off. They jump, they give the audience a fright, but they don't hang around for gratuitous muscle bristling scenes. Um, yeah, it's like they? Cloverfield. They're menacing yeah. and they're hanging yeah. around in the shadows. Sheena, who obviously I know and and uh, you do, Mark, um, is somebody that really likes doing storytelling. In fact, she... Um, she, she criticized, well, she criticized, she pointed out that in an earlier VFX show, she was like, you guys just get technical and don't talk about the story enough, which, of course, I was always worried we weren't doing the other, uh, the opposite way. But <laughs> she's worked with people like Ridley Scott and a lot of very good filmmakers um, coming up to this, uh, obviously ex-Sony. So she's had a lot of big blockbuster films under her credit. But I think it's really interesting that I was just getting the impression from everywhere I looked on this film that everybody was so focused on the story, but not, I mean, kind of some religious, we can't touch the book because it's, you know, a classic. I mean, Harry Potter, there was more of a sense of like the book was a shadow that was cast over the films that you had to sort of not let it down. Um, I think this one was more like just taking some good source material and then and then working with it. Um, and maybe, you know, like it's... Uh, 
it's a good thing that we don't have tons of big, big effect sequences. Because if you put in a couple of big action pieces to this film, it may have just completely ruined the the timing of it. Or alternatively, you'd have had to have cut out a bunch of the stuff we did like just to allow screen time for those those set pieces. And I certainly never got that sense, I'm sure you guys didn't either, where, you know, you go, okay, well, I'm into, like it happens in James Bond films, like I'm into a chase or something. When that's over, the story will start again. For now, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy this sort of ride bit where I don't expect any plot to unfold. I just expect it to be a complicated series of things that happen that get me to the next point that the plot starts up again. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I kind of, you know, as I was watching the movie, based on what I thought was going to happen in the trailer, because I went in honestly extremely jaded that I was, this was going to be ridiculous, and I was just going to be like, ugh, I can't believe I'm watching this. And I was pleasantly surprised, but the trailer made me, honestly made me think that it was going to be these giant Naboo shots of, you know, it was going to be like a big visual effects movie. And while it might be from a shot count, you know, I think we all agree that it was um, not that, you know, from a visual effects porn perspective. But, you know, I think, um, you know, using good actors like Woody Harrelson, Elizabeth Banks, you know, people like that to set up the world, I I don't think you needed it. It, it just it just worked. Uh, you know, I think they going through the angle of like you can have sponsors and Woody Harrelson can can sort of like work his his lobbying to get them help while they're in the game. I mean, I think it hit all the sort of reality TV political nonsense, uh, uh, sports, and all that kind of stuff, war and everything in a really soft, light-touch way that you got it without them hammering it down your throat. Mike, they went to great lengths to not discuss this as kids killing each other, but, you know, that the 12 or whatever go in and one comes out was kind of the way they got around that. But... Did you just get bothered at any point by the kids killing each other? Because it's a little confronting in a couple of scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, bothered. Well, I like I said, I mean, it, the moving moment that used it to, to powerful effect was with Rue. So to get to that point, I don't think you could pull your punches. I mean... You know, seeing the opening scene where the the you know she's been warned not to go straight at the platform, and you see what happens to the ones who do, and that you know, again, you mean the great, opening scene, the one first one outside the cornucopia, yep, right, yep. and again, great story builder, right? We get to see she's smart, and you know what, that paid off. So now, like we're rooting for her being the smartest player in this field because most of the rest of them charged out and it was total survival of the fittest and she headed the other direction. Okay, well, let me just change gears then and discuss one sequence that wasn't, uh, I guess, from a technical point of view, that hard to pull off, but was certainly visually strong um, from a design point of view, which was, Mark, I'd love your opinion on the hallucination uh, sequence when the uh, wasps sting and obviously kill one of the... uh, the tributes, but um, but our Katniss is just affected by way of hallucination. Yeah, the wasps themselves were awfully yellow, weren't they? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think of insects mostly appearing kind of black, but that's really nerdy and nitpicky. These were genetically enhanced. Oh, indeed. Yeah, 
uh, and made for television. So actually, that all makes sense. Uh, well, actually, yeah, I didn't pick up. I mean, did this feel? And again, I only saw it once, so I'm I'm trying to remember anything about it that felt all that different from the kind of one vision becomes three and they're going in and out of focus. Um, it worked great. It was all stuff you could do with some really cool blurs and stuff. And I mean, it has been said that you can pull off a hell of a lot of uh, visual effects with levels and blur. So, you know, maybe it's in that spirit. Um, am I missing something though? About oh, it was just, it that did that interesting temporal thing where it, oh, it basically yeah. did the scratch mix uh, forward, yes. backwards, forward, backwards. Oh, yeah. And yeah. again, not a hard thing to do, but I thought it was kind of an interesting look. Right. And one that other, it's, it's, it, like so many things, I mean, like that future UI stuff, you know, other movies would do it for total style. And you're right. That was, again, a great example of a motivated stylistic effect. Yeah, that's actually, that's a good one now that you mention it. Because, I mean, you obviously have done a lot of stuff with After Effects and, and taught it and done a lot of stuff. I mean, that sequence is something that anyone could pull off. There wasn't anything yeah. that was a kind of complex 3D. Indeed. It really seemed to work well, though. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, a lot of the shots in this film were predominantly comp. Hmm. Right? I mean, there were plenty of, you know, CG elements. We've talked about most of them, but... Then there, there's just an awful lot of good compositing in this movie, I think. Yeah. I, I even give it the thumbs up on Out the Window, in this case of the train, um, mm-hmm. as being a believable comp. Um, I seem to remember it being a bit overexposed and and uh, not drawing attention to itself. They were holding um, interior, exterior. Right. Um, good interactive light. Good. I know. I was thinking of the show as I was watching that scene, how we used to yeah. harangue on that. <laughs> there's so many hobby horses we used to ride around that I guess people must have been listening because they seem to be getting these things right now. There yeah, there was, there was even really good interactive lighting in the the sort of brushed aluminum interior of the window where you could see the the subtle reflection of the of the passing exterior. Yeah, yeah. I think Clearcut did the train comps and, and for that matter, the hallucination stuff. But I know they did the hallucination stuff because I spoke to the guys. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think um, put it this way: I think you could have spent a lot more money on some of those shots. You wouldn't have got anything particularly better. You know, you could have. And, and what I certainly was glad of is that there was limited use of super wide-angle lenses because when we can't think of anything else to do, we normally just shove someone's face up in the super. Uh, wide and and in hallucination I can buy it what I don't like is when you get that in the I feel disconnected in the capital uh, kind of feel you know everyone sort of running around and grinning at you and super mega close-ups it's very Terry Gilliam and I think he destroyed me for ever seeing anyone else do it Um, so yeah I mean you know did you guys find it as noticeable as I did that this was shot on film I don't know. I found that noticeable in a couple mm-hmm. of shots. I found it a little grainy. Yeah, there were some grainy close-ups. The low light it. stuff was was really grainy, like in the cave. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. That's where I sort of noticed the grain. Yeah, the reverse shots on her. Yeah. Um, I I thought that. Um, yeah, no, I I remember thinking more about the fact that it wasn't something I was watching in three D. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good one. <laughs> I would say the hallucination um, section benefits the most from really good editing yeah uh the well, effect is the effect but you know they they chopped it up really nicely and and paced it well because it overlaps itself a couple times 
And the only other thing I'd say there is I think that use of the control room showed the power of the editor as well because I know that came through in post, that increased use of the control room to further the story and connect it up. Um, Because let's face it, one of the worst things in a thing like this is if you lose, if you get disorientated as to which character's where and what's going on and who's up and who's down. And Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you're right. That that effect sequence of the um, of the hallucination, you know, that temporal stuff is really easy to do. You can just do it in Final Cut, and it worked really, really well. I mean, I found myself at random points trying to think like, how many kids are left, and it really didn't matter. Like, they never made you think like you had to know exactly who was left right yeah it wasn't like you're going to be suddenly surprised because you thought there was one less than there was and they came back and with a cheap trick kind of grabbed you by the ankle as you walked past yeah yeah the thing about the no 3d is significant in that it never i mean you couldn't have made a handheld film like this 3d right like this stylistically completely diverges from what you would do with a 3d movie and that you know, in 2012 is kind of an interesting thing to contemplate for a moment, right? Yeah, it is. You know, I think I think that kind of plays, I, I didn't plan it this way, but it certainly plays back to where I started, which is, I'd, I'd like to reassert that that thought. This is kind of like an older style film in that, you know, okay, you've got the material that's loved. It's a book converted to a film. They keep pretty faithful, but they obviously do a proper screenplay. And then they shot it on film. They shot it, you know, like you shoot stuff that you can shoot on film without any kind of restrictions. You can move the camera around a lot. They didn't make it, okay, here's a big effect sequence because we can. Um, they tried to focus on the characters and there were some real film cheats because they didn't have the budget to not have the film cheats, you know. And it probably didn't hurt us that much to do that and probably meant that we they kept their eye and we in the audience were able to keep our eye on the characters a bit more. You know, we could do a lot worse and have a bit more films like this, right? Yeah, well, the director, Gary Ross, his previous two films were Pleasantville and Seabiscuit. So, I mean, he, 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 and he didn't make any, didn't, hasn't directed a film between Seabiscuit and The Hunger Games. So, that's eight, eight year, nine years. You know, I mean, clearly he lives in a more classic film uh, style. You know? He was also a writer on Big and Dave, right? I think I heard on the, uh, the treatment he was interviewed. So yeah, uh, so he's really got story cred yeah, from being a solid writer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I loved Pleasantville. I'm was a little less pleased with Seabiscuit. You guys or I was into Seabiscuit. I liked yeah. Seabiscuit. Yeah, I liked it. I could have done okay. with less Tobey Maguire, but you know that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I think that kind of wraps it up. Unless there's any uh, points that you you know you uh, feel like we haven't uh, given our tributes credit you know, for. As I was watching the closing credits and saw the greenskeepers and hairdressers and foley artists go by before the, all the vfx companies that worked on this i it occurred to me that this whole film could be an allegory for uh, our industry where the vfx companies are the 12 districts and hollywood is this <laughs> republic instilling them with fear and uh, attempting to pit them against each other and occasionally demands one of them to be sacrificed to keep everybody in line do you guys uh, do you see it that way I hadn't seen it that way. Um, I, I, I'm sure that was All the right. subtext that Gary Ross was going for. I'm pretty um, sure that was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, certainly, it'll be really interesting to see where they go for the next uh, films because they will have a lot more attention paid. I mean, I don't know this for a fact. I'm just saying this personally, but it feels like maybe even though this was a much-coveted uh, book, this wasn't from a big studio like a Sony or a... Disney or whatever, so maybe this film benefited a little bit from flying under the radar, uh, not being 
you know, something that everybody had an oar in. Uh, right. But going forward, it's going to have everybody wanting to get into that lifeboat <laughs> and put their oar in. Um, so I Mark, hope they can stay focused. Mark, would your previous analogy, would that make uh, Weta District 9? <laughs> it would have to, I guess. Ow. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, plus I'm dead dead keen to see whether they actually make uh, the next one, which is what the... Well, I should know that I'm reading it, right? It's like the fire bird or the Catching fire. fire. Catching fire, thank you. Um, yeah, whether that's going to be 3D or not. Um, I hope not. So, as I say, anything else that we haven't covered uh, in terms of the visual effects point of view? I, I think you know, it certainly didn't feel like a big effects film. I think it was... There were a couple of places it could have done with another, a bit more uh, time and money just to um, to give me an extra shot or two, but not an entire sequence, as it were. I would say it's probably one of the best uses of visual effects from a story perspective for of a film that's been out for a while that, that could have easily drowned in visual effects. Yes, it could have easily gone completely off uh, into, you know, com- just a horrendous... Um, display of gratuitous shots that meant that people like my kids that loved it to death and really just wanted to see Rue didn't get that kind of a, uh, an emotional play in it. I totally agree with that. Any, any last thoughts from you, Mark? No, I think we've covered it really well. So, um, I mean, as well as we can. <laughs> as well as we can, yeah. So, Mark, um, uh, where can people follow up and see you and see what oh, you're doing? Yeah, I've been working on so much stuff that's under the radar that I've been... Is it uh, still under the radar? Yeah, it pretty much is. But I think at okay. NAB you'll be hearing a little more from me. I mean, you definitely will be hearing more from me at NAB. Okay. So, uh, meanwhile, I will get back to... When I have more things I can talk about, I'll get back to tweeting as a flow seeker, as always. Well, I can say, knowing a little bit, uh, not all I'm sure, of that... <laughs> Mark is not one of those guys who's between jobs pretending like he has a lot on but can't talk about it. I know that he has some awesome things that he just absolutely can't talk about. Um, so the second he's allowed to talk about it, I'm very upset if he talks about it and anyone else but us first, but there you go. Yeah, you um, got to be careful what you wish for, but I could stand to have a little bit less going on right now, <laughs> to be yeah. honest. Well, you know, there's that old thing like, oh, I'm really busy, but I can't talk about it right now. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's Hollywood, baby. Talking. Right. Yeah, I was talking to someone the other day whose studio is being wound down, oh. and he was having a really hard time scheduling time to talk to me. And I was like, "I'll okay, keep you busy. It's hard to get you're rid really of stuff." Busy, but he was like, "Actually, I'm not really that busy at all." We're just <laughs> nice guy. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. it was just like, "Okay, I, can't. I, I sort of led with, you know, well, I know you're really busy, and thanks for fitting me in." Anyway, yeah, and really, I'm not that busy at all. Um, <laughs> what about you, Jason? Um. I actually am in the same boat as Mark. I can talk about what I'm doing, but I just have a lot of it going on. Um, and well, I'm preparing and to go up in a helicopter. Helicopter, tomorrow. I was about to say, because you had bad weather two days ago, right? Yeah. Uh, my brother, myself, and Danny Prince are going up in a helicopter tomorrow over Manhattan. Mm. Now, what, what, what moron decided to think that that was a good idea to send you guys up with a camera to uh, New York? I don't know. Some guy from Australia and some guy from Chicago and some guy from L.A. Actually, it was mainly uh. the guy from Chicago. <laughs> True. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, my feet will be dangling out of a helicopter tomorrow. The guy said, make sure you wear really tight shoes. Oh, you're allowed to get on the running boards? Last I heard, you weren't allowed to shoot out there. You were going to shoot through a window. Uh, oh, no, the door, the door will be off and I will be in a harness. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I got a Tyler mount uh, oh, getting picked great. up in the morning like the one you had in New Zealand. And uh, I didn't have a Tyler gyro. mount. I had a, I had a gyro, 
Uh, yeah, well, it's the same thing, it. the Tyler gyro, mini gyro. Oh, okay, yep, I'm sorry. Yeah, yep. with the pogo stick thing, yeah. Yep. Uh, so I will be doing that tomorrow. Uh, in okay, the... I, I say this with no sarcasm. It's the most blokey man friggin' hugging thing you can do. <laughs> like, if you don't come back from that thing just with testosterone coming out your ears, you're just not the yeah. Jason I know. It is, you just, it's like, you know, forget going to a movie and getting yeehawed about some kind of kick-ass alien attack. You come off shooting out the side of a chopper. Oh, yeah. yeah. Much it's, less over Manhattan. It's a man-maker. Uh, over Manhattan at dusk? Are you kidding me? I, I would practically do anything to be there to sucker a ride. Yeah, it's we're great be, doing that. I mean, we can go. We can go as high as two thousand feet, which is seven hundred feet higher than the tip of the Empire State Building. Ah, but how low can you go? Uh, <laughs> I think eight hundred feet if we went over to Central Park. Okay, now you're talking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, we'll be we'll be buzzing. And you're buzzing Empire State, right? Oh yeah. And so you're going to tell anyone why you're doing this and why John thought it was a good idea that you do this and why he can't <laughs> be with you to do it. Uh. Because um, Danny Prince and my brother and myself, as the Diamond Brothers, are co-directing um, a movie trailer for an FX PhD class this term, After Effects 218. Uh, we also have Lloyd Alvarez, uh, the master, coming on to do some title uh, treatments, and Michelle Higa from the Mixtape Club to do character animation and rigging. Wow. Mm, I know. <laughs> Yummy. Yes. I was shooting yesterday for our uh, stuff we were doing in terms of uh, background fundamentals and uh, our digital camera tech course. And we were doing uh, flame, you know, the frame breathers, you know, the, what do you call them? Uh, yeah. The guys at. Oh, yeah. Fire breathers. Fire breather. Thank you. Yes. At about 250 frames a second, right into the camera with nice. uh, Lexan up. And. Uh, on Red One and Epic and shooting on Sony and stuff. And I was having a ball. And then I was like humbled by John going, yeah, well, the guys are going up in the chopper to shoot around Manhattan. Like, okay, well, that's... <laughs> well, you were in a, a chopper in New Zealand over a glacier. No, no. I mean, come on. No, no, totally. No, but I'm, is there I'm some dead. homeland security angle to this too? Did no, you guys... none. It's all a good idea. Shut up. I wish. No, no, no. no. Did you guys have to get clearance to no. fly around the... No, really? it's actually surprisingly easy. What? Uh, well, there's call... commercial helicopters that fly around New York, right? Yeah, I mean they're just aerial photography helicopters. They have the they have free reign to go anywhere in Manhattan at any given time, uh, you know, minus FAA closures for the president or other shit like that. And they can mm -hmm. go between zero and two thousand feet and seven thousand feet and higher because two thousand to seven thousand feet is is owned by the airlines. But you can get in there if you can pass through it. I think if yeah. you need to get up to seven thousand, but uh, if you want to go in there, then you just have to clear it with the FAA and there's specific flight patterns you have to miss and whatever. But we don't need to do that. Uh, we don't need to get up that high. Um, but, wow, you know, there you I, go. The I, first time LA I, are just the same. same. The first time I buzzed around the Sydney Opera House in a, in a chopper on the running boards, it was like the first time I was ever out on the boards and I was doing still photography because we were going to um, do some stuff we only needed stills. And uh, we got permission to go really low because that's lower than the top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And I was out and I came in and I was just so elated and I completely uh, opened the back of the film camera because no. it was a film camera without rewinding it because I was just too like buzzed out. And I was like, they're like, do you want to know the pass? And I went, yeah, I want to yeah, know the pass. Because <laughs> I didn't get anything. Yeah. 
As it turned out, I didn't completely ruin the film, but I'm not just doing stills, but I was like, you idiot. But it was just such a rush, man. That's just Yeah, awesome. we're bringing up uh, our epics and uh, oh, dear. see what happens. Probably a this lot of HDRX, awesome. that's for sure. Yeah, man. You know what? The uh, I've got to tell you the thing. We were doing this yesterday. We were filming. Um, we had some Sony cameras, some other cameras we were filming, and... I kept on reaching for the Epic because, as Tom said, who's also doing the course with me, it's like, you know, there's a safety net there. Like, you can blow it up in post. There's a lot of grading latitude. You've got a bit of a safety net there. If we're going to be doing this a bit run and gun, I just want the safety net. So if I haven't got the exposure quite right, you can change the ISO in post or whatever. And I was like, yeah, man, I've just become so reliant on that. Yeah. That that being said, next week on Tuesday, I land in LA where my 5D Mark III is waiting for me. So. Yes, I, mm-hmm. I've, I've held your camera. Before. Oh, right. Oh, thank you. That was very kind of you. <laughs> Ew. Hey, um, can I just do a shout-out for um, for FX Guide, who obviously provides the show, and that's especially to the, uh, as we record this, 108 supporters that have so far contributed. We asked the community whether you guys would like us to do FX Guide uh, live from Vegas and also whether there'd like to be an iPad app that you would allow you to get um, podcasts like this and also written stories that you could download but also we thought it would be really cool because we travel a lot if you could do that remotely so you could say hey give me all the stories for the last week off fx guide and the podcast and then you get on the plane and you can just read it like you're online and listen to podcasts and stuff but it's actually all been downloaded to the um to the ipad and within three days two days uh a whole lot of you nearly um i think it was like 70 or something of you jumped on and gave us the fifteen thousand dollars that we wanted to achieve that goal and we're continuing to do it, and it's uh, we're over eighteen thousand dollars now, as um, as we speak, of people giving uh, money. And if you, this really is um, you guys contributing and allowing us to do stuff, and we appreciate it. But as our way of saying thank you, also at various levels of contribution uh, to that, there are some really cool uh, things we're giving behind the scenes videos, some podcast stuff, also at certain levels, hats, coats, um, membership to FX PhD. Uh, a ton of stuff and we had a bunch of companies come on as well uh, one of which was the foundry who really put their hand in their pocket so we're going to be doing this live from nab uh on the on the tuesday of nab so that's like a week next tuesday which is not much help if you listen to your podcast so i'll actually give you the date which is the 17th um american time we're going to be uh from 10 in the morning till about four i think in the afternoon 100 percent live from the booth there we're going to be carrying cameras and stuff and also uh we're going to be doing live presentation so for example jeff's gonna be doing a whole run through on a whole lot of cool material putting it together using uh hero uh, which is awesome so that'll all be going out and that's all because you guys uh supported us so if you haven't done so yet and you'd like to contribute and buy in and get some of those cool uh one-off uh thank yous from us please go over to uh, com slash fx2012 or just look on the home page and you'll see a link there uh the fact that you guys have been so generous in supporting us means we're able to do a whole lot of stuff, and we really, really do genuinely appreciate that. Another advantage of this is that we are not plastering the site with advertising. We do have some sponsors and some ads that we, we do, and we will continue to do those, but I love not having to plaster the site with, um, with ads. So thank you for that. And as you just heard a second ago, obviously we're shooting for the new term, which has just started over at fxphd.com with people like Jason. Um, teaching some really, really cool stuff. So, And, of course, Mark has taught for us before and has been extraordinarily popular. So um, yeah. thanks, guys. And yeah. thanks for being on the show this week, guys. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. 
Um, okay, so I, I guess I should say something about the odds being in your favor, though. As I'm going to Vegas, that doesn't seem like a good thing to be <laughs> promising. But uh, are you going to Vegas, Mark, for NAD? Yeah, I'll be there. Excellent. All right. So drinks are on me. I know you're going to be there, Jason. Um, we'll see you guys there. It's going to be my Vegas, birthday on your big Tuesday. Dude, we, we've got to let us buy you ridiculous <laughs> amounts of alcohol. It's oh, my birthday okay. right after that. That's right. Um, I remember that. Yeah. Yep. Yes. I had my 40th birthday party in Vegas one year and it, the party was going normally. And then Jeff Huser walked into the room and within several hours, the security guys at Caesars had come up to the room three times and said, if we had to come up one more time, they were going to throw us out of Vegas, at least out of, out of Caesars. Yeah. I was particularly proud of my good friend Jeff and his ability to turn a party into an orgy. It was uh, <laughs> oh, fun, of course. Oh, that's what I meant by that. <clears throat> because, Indeed. Yes. He is, uh, he is more fun in, uh, in half an hour than I am in, in half a lifetime. Hey, um, so like, thanks for supporting us. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for listening this week. We've got more stuff coming up. Of course, if you can listen in to the live event from Vegas, uh, as I said, on the week of NAB on the Tuesday, uh, where I will be buying Mark uh, drinks on air and getting him drunk um, as we listen. <laughs> uh, see you guys there. Yes. And uh, if you are in Vegas, come down to the South Hall where you walk down the South Hall, walk down, go down some stairs, which are halfway down the South Hall, and we're over on the right-hand side on a corner of the foundry booth, which they've donated to give us, which is very kind of them. So our thanks to them. And as I say, thanks to everybody else who's, uh, who's given stuff. Until next time, guys, I'm Mike Seymour. See ya. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.